So now we'll actually be jumping around quite a bit this morning. Uh, we are in our third and final week of kind of a, a little mini series we've been doing as we've been going through First Corinthians. And uh, we, we went through the kind of the first half of First Corinthians 7 two weeks ago. And then last week, uh, we looked at marriage and God's design for marriage and why it is important for us to understand uh, what, why God has created marriage, what that looks like, and why we pursue marriage in the first place. So this week, we're going to look at singleness and we're going to look at it as a gift because that's exactly what Paul says that it is in that passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But I want to start off by just asking you guys a question uh, to kind of get us thinking and, and processing through maybe how the church tends to approach singleness. So how many of you guys have ever believed a story or information about something only to later find out that it wasn't true? Right, for sure. There's an entire website on the internet devoted to debunking these types of things. Uh, one of my f favorite examples is when, we, when my wife and I first moved to Gainesville, I was bivocational, which meant that I worked part-time for the church and I worked part-time for a local bank here in town. And one of the ladies that I worked with, it was early fall. And any of you guys that have ever grown up or spent any amount of time in Gainesville know that about September, there's these awesome black bugs that swarm us and cause us to need to wash our cars about four times a week. Love bugs. And we were complaining about how bad they were that year. And my coworker, she goes, well, you know, the University of Florida is responsible for that. I was like, to tell. <laughs> she goes, yeah, they genetically engineered them and then they escaped. I was like, that's a pretty bold claim. Are you sure that that's a fact? Oh yeah, yeah, it's gotta be true. It's gotta be true. So sure enough, I hop on, you know, the Google and immediately like, were love bugs manufactured in a lab with UF researchers? And like five things come up immediately. No, this is an urban legend. You know, these bugs have always existed, meaning we have someone else to blame, not the University of Florida for their existence. But it was believable. Right? It was believable, and that's how this type of stuff tends to happen. Is Well, it is possible that maybe UF was doing some research and, and got these, but it's not true. And we don't even sometimes take the time to fact check or think through the implications of what we might be believing. Here, here's a biblical example. Right? How many of you guys have ever heard the term, God only helps those who help themselves? Yeah, good amount of you. Nowhere in the, in the Bible will you find that. That is um, created by, I don't know, Teddy Roosevelt, someone else, right? Throughout the course of human history that was trying to get Americans to pick themselves up by their bootstraps. Nowhere does God say anything that, that he will only help those who help themselves. It is not a biblical idea. And I think we do this a lot, that we kind of implicitly believe things that are not true and don't even try to challenge ourselves on whether it is true or not. And one of the ways I think I find Christians doing this regularly is in regards to what we believe about marriage and what we believe about singleness. 
If you look at our text this morning, let me read it to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 6 through 9. Look at what Paul says. He says, now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion." So look at that first thing that Paul says there in verse 6. What we know historically about Paul himself is that he was single, unmarried, and he says that he wishes, he desires that everyone in Corinth was like he was. Yeah, I just wish you guys weren't married. He thinks singleness is great and a real advantage. That's his personal opinion on the matter. But then look at what he says. But... Each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. What is this showing us? It's showing us that Paul is teaching the church marriage as an institution is a gift from God. And here's the deal. The church does a good job of displaying that oftentimes. But here's the other truth. Singleness is also a gift from God to be enjoyed. Single people this morning, let me ask you this. Do you believe that? Do you believe that your singleness is actually a gift that God has given you? And by the way, we're not saying permanent, but that in your singleness right now, is that a gift from God? It has been my experience over the years leading this church and being on staff at another one and being in leadership at a third that the church struggles to communicate this truth that singleness is a gift. It is a a good thing to be enjoyed. And another thing that I've noticed is not only does the church at large and leadership inside the church struggle to do that, but singles themselves struggle to believe that that could be true. And so here's going to be our goal today. We're going to parse through lies that people tend to believe about singleness. Lies that we believe about singleness and that we believe about marriage. And through that, we're going to attempt to unpack, right, how God can make us glorious and use our singleness or our marriage for his glory. So kind of just to start off the top, I'm deeply indebted to a number of sources and materials for our sermon this week. Last week, I told you guys that I was indebted to Tim Keller's meeting of marriage. Same. You're going to hear from him again. If you didn't like him last week, I apologize. You're going to hear him again this morning. Uh, There's also another book, Single People. I highly recommend you grab this book. It would take you two days to read it if you you took the time. Uh, It's called Seven Myths About Singleness uh, by Sam Albury. He's smarter than me, so he has way more points than I'm going to have in my sermon this morning. But highly, highly recommend that book uh, to process through. Uh, He is a single pastor who 
uh, battles same-sex attraction. So he has a beautiful perspective on how God has given, right, this gift of singleness to his church. And then lastly, there are a number of people in this church whose wisdom and conversations I've had over the years that have helped me process through this topic. Guys like Brent Smith, Pastor Theo, uh, Isaiah Fetterman, just to name a few. And so you might even hear some things this morning that are directly from them and their own experience as singles to kind of help communicate to me. And so we're going to work through three lies that singles tend to believe, and maybe more specifically, Christian singles tend to believe about singleness. And then we're going to look at what scripture has to say about those. And then I'm going to finish this morning with just some practical advice on how we as the church, that means all of us in this room, how we can esteem singleness as a gift and enjoy it to the glory of God. And it's not, and, and, and hear me on this, single people, because I, I know what tends to happen if there is a sermon on single people, right? We spend all this time talking about singleness and how it's good. And then like at the end, we give all this practical advice for singles. Married people, I'm coming for you this morning as well. Because I actually believe that one of the reasons why the church struggles with this so deeply is that we as married people, really, really struggle to love on single people well and esteem that gift. And I think there's some practical things we could do that would cause us to love one another better as the church and walk forward as a family united in our love for Jesus. So let's look at this first one that we have this morning uh, that I want to kind of unpack. And it's this idea of singleness is a special calling. Singleness is a special calling. So if you don't know anything about me, I grew up kind of nominally going to church. I didn't become a follower of Jesus until I uh, was in between my sophomore and junior years of college. And around that time, the internet was like really, really starting to explode and podcasts were just becoming a thing and the iPhone didn't even exist yet. You know, we had, you know, these phones that you had to like actually flip up and like type things out and they could only make phone calls. And so um, as Apple kind of introduced this thing called the iPod, podcasts started. And there were certain churches that used that media to great success, and they kind of gained big platforms. And so as a young Christian, I was just so excited to finally understand the Bible. I just wanted to learn as much as possible. And so I would listen to hours and hours of sermons every week from various pastors. And one of those pastors that heavily influenced me in my early 20s was a guy by the name of Mark Driscoll at Mars Hill Church out in Seattle. And I remember him preaching a sermon one time on singleness. And here's kind of, here was kind of his premise, right? He says, hey, singleness is a gift given by God. It's good, right? God gives the gift of singleness. But then here was kind of his next part as he was unpacking that for his church. He says that gift, though, is a special calling, that, that only some of us will have the gift of singleness and it's a special calling. And if you have that special calling, it's like Paul and it's solely for ministry purposes. Meaning if you have the gift of singleness, you should use it and go be a missionary somewhere in the Amazon jungle or reaching unreached people groups in Africa or heading to the Pacific um, uh, 
islands and hopping from island to island to spread the gospel because as a, as a single person, you are unfettered. And so you are more effective for the kingdom of God going as a single person. And so like this was basically his charge. If you have the gift of singleness, you need to go be a missionary overseas. Otherwise, you need to stay here, get married, have a family to the glory of God. It's basically what he taught. And like we so often do, I implicitly believe that to be true. I implicitly believe that like, if you are single, it is a super special calling and you're gonna be just like Paul on the road to Damascus and you're gonna go plant churches and you're gonna do all these different things. And even for a season in groups that I led or whatever else, I taught that as if it was a biblical truth. Now, believing that, guys, and hear me on this, is super problematic. Because one, that is not what Paul is saying here, and it's not what Scripture is teaching at all about singleness. Paul, nor any New Testament author, says what I just said anywhere. All Paul says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is that marriage and singleness are both gifts not callings. And there's a difference between a gift and a calling. But if we view marriage or singleness in terms of calling, we're going to have a, the, a great potential to develop some unhealthy beliefs about those two states of life. The first one is this, right? If you deny it as a gift and, and start expressing marriage or singleness as a calling, it means you're being told to do something by God, which may or may not be true. And specifically, the language of Scripture calls it a gift, meaning if we view it as a gift, we need to understand what gifts are. Right? If you look in the Greek, the, the word for gift there in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is the Greek word charisma, right? It's where we get the word grace. It's a, it's a derivation of the word grace, which is charis. And it just means unmerited favor. It means you've been given something that you didn't deserve. Therefore, if we view singleness as a calling, we're finding a creative way to deny the fact that God is giving it as a gift to be enjoyed and can instead start to view it as a cross to bear. Right, if something is given as a gift, right? Like is any, have any of you guys ever given a gift just to troll someone? Very rarely, right? Maybe a few of us. Like, my newest nephew in London is going to be getting some very large toys in a few months because of my sister. My sister bought terrible, terrible toys for my kids, and there will be revenge. <laughs> but for the most part, and here's even the beautiful part about this, even in giving that gift, I know I'm going to irritate my brother-in-law and sister. My nephew's going to love it. Right? And that, that's the point of giving gifts, right? is we give gifts to people because we want them to enjoy it. 
We want them to experience something and, and to enjoy something. And so we buy something and we give it to them and we do this every year. We're going to be doing it in about a month, right? We're all going to be stressed out about it. What do I get? What do I do? I hate that about Christmas, by the way. How terrible is that? It's supposed to be a holiday where we're celebrating the incarnation of Jesus and loving on one another and we're all stressed out about buying the wrong thing. Can't go wrong with a gift card, by the way. But here's the reality, right? If we then start distilling down a gift, God is saying, hey, I give singleness to you as a gift. I give marriage as a gift. If we rip that from our understanding of what marriage and singleness are, instead start viewing it as a calling, we'll start then being able to say, you know what? I don't really like this calling I've been given, but it's my cross to bear. And then... Right, we inevitably stop viewing why God might have given it to us as a gift in the first place. And we try to survive it instead of enjoy it. Now hear me on this. Just because Paul says this is a gift does not mean that singleness is great all the time and that you have to be happy and excited about it. We all have been given gifts that were like, thanks, mom. Right? When you're a kid, socks are the worst. I promise you, some of you guys in this room, you're about five years away from socks being an awesome gift. Every year I'm like, Jackie gets me socks now. I'm like, yes, you have saved me an annoying errand. We've all been given gifts that we might not enjoy at some point in time, but it doesn't mean that they aren't good and good for us. Now, not only right, is it important that we understand this distinction of Paul calling this a gift, but here's the deal. Most often, if you've been given a gift, even if you don't like it, it's really, really hard to become bitter and angry for somebody for that gift. But if you've been called and told to do something, it's a lot easier to run to bitterness instead of contentment and gratitude. And the biggest thing that I think I, I want us to understand, and singles hear me on this this morning, right? I'm going to be hard on you for just a second, right? Single people tend to have this woe is me attitude a lot of times. Like, I can't believe how terrible this is. God just won't give me someone to marry. I hate being single and, and all these different things. And in that, especially if you view that singleness as a calling, you are therefore saying that married people have no reason to ever be discontent in their relationship. Wrong. Because you go from one sinful person trying to navigate through life as a single unit to two sinful people trying to navigate through life as a single unit. Both of them have their beauties and complexity that God has given them, And they also both have their difficulties that are distinct and different, but are true. And if we start saying that this is a calling, right, we allow ourselves to start believing that, hey, God, maybe God screwed up giving me this calling. And that applies both to singles and to married people. And so what if instead... We took Paul at his word here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we said, you know what? Paul says singleness is a gift. What does that mean? What, is, what does it mean for something to be a gift? 
All right, turn over to 1 Corinthians 14 with me. If you know anything about the second half of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, chapters 12, 13, and 14 are all about spiritual gifts. This church had such a jacked up view of spiritual gifts that it took Paul three full chapters to try to fix their problems. I'm still not convinced that he did. But look at what he says when you get to verse 12. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. All right, three full chapters of spiritual gifts. As he's talking, he's correcting false beliefs about gifts, spiritual gifts, how they're supposed to be used, how they're supposed to operate, what we're supposed to be doing with them. And then he gets to chapter 14 and he says, you guys do understand what these manifestations of the Spirit, what these gifts are, right? The reason the Holy Spirit gives them to us is to build up the church. Do you ever think about this, that your marriage might not just be for you and your spouse, but might be for the good of Christ and his church? Do you ever think that you being single in this season might not be God's punishment or chastisement of you, but might actually be for the good of those around you? Marriage can build up a church and so can singleness. I love how Tim Keller puts this when he was talking about it in The Meaning of Marriage. He says, the single calling Paul speaks of is neither a condition without a struggle, nor on the other hand, an experience of misery. It is a fruitfulness in life and ministry through the single state. When you have this gift, there may indeed be struggles, but the main thing is that God is helping you grow spiritually and be fruitful in the lives of others despite them. He's saying, whether you're married or single, God has given that gift to you so that you might experience spiritual growth and also at the same time be fruitful in your life and in the lives of others. And the question we have to ask ourselves is this, well, if it is a gift, does God give bad gifts? Scripture leads me to believe, no. I've read the entire book. I don't see that anywhere. Here's an example for for Jackie and I, because I think sometimes it can be hard as a single person to fail to realize, hey, how can my singleness right, positively impact and affect the church. So when Jackie and I, uh, we'd been in Gainesville for a few years. We had Josiah. Some of you guys know this story. Josiah had epilepsy from day one. His first 90 days, about 60 of them were spent in the hospital. Jackie had had her own hotel room there, basically, with with our son. And the church rallied around us in that season, and we were about half the size, if not a third of the size we are now as a church. And at that time, you think we're young now, we were even younger then. Like the oldest person in the church was a guy in his early 40s, and then there was me in my early 30s, late 20s, and then everyone else was like 19. And there was a single lady in the church at the time who was... Uh, pursuing her uh, bachelor's degree in nursing. And so she was also working as a CRNA at UF. And every time that she was there, 
she would try to swing by, love on my wife, bring her coffee, bring her food, and pray for us. Right? She used the season of life she was in as a single, unmarried woman pursuing her degree, working full-time at the hospital to take time out of her own personal time to come by and love on my wife and subsequently me. And therefore, what if we stopped viewing singleness as some sort of bizarre calling that we're forced to live out and instead viewed it as a gift given to us by our God? How might that change your approach to a season of singleness and then marriage later on? Maybe it might just allow us to see a good God who wants to work in us and through us to his glory. Let me just say this. One of the primary reasons that I think single people tend to struggle with this so much is because the church does elevate marriage to such a high position. But know this. The Bible elevates both. The married people in this room are not a higher level of Christian than you. That doesn't exist. God gives gifts so that we might enjoy him and serve his church. Not as special callings meant to be begrudgingly and dutifully followed, but as gifts to be enjoyed and stewarded. So that first thing we, 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 we tried to answer, right? Singleness requires a special calling, and the scriptures teach us most assuredly not, that singleness and marriage are both gifts. Let's look at our second one. Singleness means no intimacy. I've heard this said over the years from single people in my life that they felt like they had no real intimacy, or at least the type of intimacy that they longed for because they were unmarried. And I think there's a number of responses to this, and we'll look at what Scripture says about this in particular. But there there are some basic problematic philosophical issues with this view. The first one is this. This assumes that if you are unmarried, that God-wired intimacy can only be found in marriage. And that ultimately, what is often being communicated in that view is sexual intimacy. Right? And so what, what we tend to walk around believing is, is I can't experience and know true intimacy until I'm married. And what you end up believing is that the only way deep intimacy can be cultivated is ultimately in marriage. This assumes then that once you're married, you just automatically, magically start experiencing this intimacy. And any married couple in this room will tell you that is not how it happens. You don't say, I do, and then start enjoying sexual intimacy and start living together. And all of a sudden, you're just best friends and everything works and you're talking all the time and you just love one another. That's not how marriage works. And so what this leads to then is this, one, too high a view of marriage and too low of you 
of intimacy outside of marriage, friendship, which is God's design for true intimacy anyway. But look at Proverbs chapter 18 with me, verse 24. Will you throw that up on the screen for me? A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Right? See what Solomon is saying to his son there? He's saying, look, there, there are many companions or acquaintances in life. And if you start to believe that these companions or acquaintances are deep friendships, that will come to ruin. But there are true friendships that go deeper than the surface. And when those types of intimate friendships are formed, you have someone closer than a blood relative. It is someone that chooses to stick close and walk through the ups and downs of life that proves themselves to be a true friend. And yes, marriage is one of the places that that happens. Why? Because you've promised to one another, you have to do this, right? When, when Jackie and I stood before the 200 and some people that, are, that were at our wedding, some of them uninvited, yes, people showed up to our wedding uninvited, I don't know how that happened. We made promises before God and those people to each other that we were going to stick by each other for richer, for poorer, mostly poorer, right, honey? <laughs> in sickness and in health until death separated us, right? Here's what we were communicating. I choose you. I choose to stick by you even when it's hard. It's been hard sometimes, hasn't it? Jackie's smirking. It's her only defense. <laughs> there is nothing in this life, though, that says to us that that type of friendship and intimacy can only occur inside of marriage. Some of you in this room already know what I'm talking about because you have friends who are this close. Friends that have stuck by you through difficult times. A biblical example of this would be Jonathan and David, right? In 2 Samuel, Jonathan, who is Saul's son, the guy who's been trying to kill David, right, are so close that they're like brothers. Throw up 2 Samuel uh, chapter 1 for me, will you? How, this is David singing after Jonathan's death. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother. Jonathan, very pleasant you have been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. Now, some of us, especially the guys in the room, we, re we read that and we're like, Ooh, weird. It's not sexual. Relax. Right, what... What David is saying here, a guy with multiple wives, he's describing a deep friendship with a brother who is stuck by him even while that guy's dad has been trying to kill him. I mean, can you imagine that? You know, there's this guy consistently trying to kill me, but his son is my best friend and tries to protect me. It's like a soap opera. 
And in the social media age, it's tough for us to define friendship, right? Because we view digital connection as friendship or followers or whatever else, and we fail to understand and grasp what it really takes to make deep, intimate friendships and relationships. I mean, as of me writing this sermon, I had 2,228 friends on Facebook, and I don't even use that platform anymore. I've been on it two times in the last six months to post two, two things. Every time I log on there, I just get overwhelmed because I have like 90,000 notifications. I'm like, I hate this thing. Those people don't know what's going on in my life. They don't truly know what's happening. Most are acquaintances or companions. But as Solomon says, there is a friend who sticks close by. And I've experienced that as well. And here's the deal. I think we always view success, right, in terms of friendships or whatever else, in terms of like popularity and how many friends we have. It's like, oh, I wish I was like the popular guy or girl in high school where we had all these friends and whatever else. Most of those people don't have any deep, lasting, meaningful relationships because they're too busy trying to keep 90 people happy. I mean, think about our Savior, guys. He had 12 close friends, and of those 12, only three of them were actually really close. Why? Because true, deep intimacy takes time, and you can't do that with 2,200 people. But with the three or four that it is deep, you get to experience true friendship, and that true friendship is a choice where we elect to love one another and pour into one another. As Tim Keller talks about in the meaning of marriage, he says that any marriage should be built upon friendship if it's going to last, and that ultimately Christian friendship is the best kind of friendship there is. He says, most of the time when we think about friendship, we think of terms of, well, we have this in common, or we both like this thing, or we like this band, or we both like to play poker, or we like games, or sewing, whatever it is, right? But we find these common interests that we have, and we get together, and we celebrate around those common interests, and we spend time together. And very much so, even within the church, can we have friendships like that? But ultimately, Christians have things binding them together that are far deeper than interests, Number one, you both believe that the God of the universe sent his son to die in your place for your sin. And that you both recognize your own failings, but that in Christ you are a new creation loved by your creator. And then here's something else crazy that Christians do. Right? The world will tell you that, the, that one of the most beautiful things that you can experience in this life is to be loved and experience tolerance. It's what it tells us. You're a true friend because you just love me for me. The Bible says a true friend loves you and tells you what's true about yourself, which calls you out on your sin and your junk. Right? Tim Keller says, true Christian friendship has a hunting license. Where if you are friends with somebody who is a Christian, you are by definition giving them a license to come after you. Not to kill you, but to kill the old self with its lusts and its passions so you that, that you might now live in the freedom that Christ died for. 
And this is tough, guys, right? Some of it means for some of you guys who don't like to call people out, you have to do something you don't like to do. You see your friend walking around in sin, creating problems, reaping destruction in their path, and you love them enough to tell them, stop, you're evil. Repent. Love your God. And sometimes it means you get called out on that stuff, that someone loves you enough to tell you the truth. Some of you guys remember Pastor Derek before he and his wife moved back in May. I cannot count to you how many times that man called me to tell me, you've screwed up with your wife, go fix it before I have to fix you. Do you think I wanted to hear that? No, of course not. I'm prideful, but I needed to hear it. Having a friend like that is exactly the type of intimacy that you can experience as a married man or a single man. And yes, I enjoy that same friendship and intimacy with my wife, but not just her, but with others as well. Because true intimacy has nothing to do with sex, has nothing to do with marriage, and has everything to do with the friendship that you cultivate with that other person. And the Bible tells us that we can have it both as single or married to enjoy as a gift. And so singleness is not a special calling that you have to have. Singleness is not some special just punishment that God gives us where there's no intimacy in your life. And the last one I want to talk about this is this. Singleness means no family. Society, and especially the church, places a really, really high view, and in my opinion, sometimes even rightfully so, on marriage and family and building up the family. Right? Statistically, right, if you look out over the landscape of American society, right, you can trace a direct line to where the nuclear family began to break down in the United States and to where things started going haywire from a cultural perspective in the U.S. And I'm not, I, I am not even saying a particular type of religious family, nothing. I'm just saying the, the nuclear family, the sociological and anthropological studies show that families are better overall for a society. It's a scientific fact. Right? And so we tend to elevate that, and especially inside of the church. This, however, can lead to an overemphasis, which leads singles to believe that they don't matter until they're married and force marriage too early, force relationships too early, try to rush to um, get to that place before they're ready to get there. And it can lead people that once they get to later stages of life and might still be single to believe that they can have no family. But let's consider what Jesus had to say on family in Mark chapter 3. Look at what he says. Starting in verse 31. 
he's been teaching, and he gets to the end of teaching, and look at what happens. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. Right? Notice that his parents wouldn't, his family wouldn't even go inside because they were so ashamed of him. He's been teaching, and they won't even go inside. And they called to him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Right, Jesus completely redefines the notion of family in the Gospels. Completely redefines it. Jewish life and culture had a very, very high view of family. They believed that family was a blessing and a legacy, which led to multiple problems, especially for married couples who couldn't have kids. Because if you couldn't continue your line and your, and your, your family lineage, you were cursed because there was such a high view of family and children. To not have a family, to not have children in Jewish culture was a great shame. This is why when we studied the book of Ruth a couple months ago, the idea of Boaz stepping in and being Ruth and Naomi's kinsman redeemer was such a big deal. Because God, even in the Old Testament, knew how much Jewish culture esteemed this and how important it was and knew that women without a husband or without heirs really couldn't function inside of Jewish society. And so God created a law that basically said, look, if you have a brother and your brother dies or you have a cousin and they have no one to take care of them, it is your job to step in and provide for that widow because of the way that society functioned. And then we get to the New Testament, and here's Jesus' family sitting outside of this room, basically telling Jesus, stop doing what you're doing. You're bringing shame upon our family. What are you doing? And Jesus says, yeah, let me give you a new picture of family. People leaving things, jobs, the family that they grew up with, their nuclear family, their homes, to follow me. That's the new family. And it's going to be a costly thing. Right? You may have to deny mother or brother and sister by blood. You might have to surrender relational capital of your own nuclear family. But Jesus promises them this, it will be worth it. And here's how I know. Go look at Mark chapter 10. Starting in verse 17. Most of you will be familiar with this story. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. By the way, he knows what Jesus is doing there. I'm God. You call me good because I'm God in the flesh. Look what he says next. 
You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Here's what Jesus is saying. Giving up all to follow me is always worth it. Both in this life and in the life to come. Single people, hear me on this. If you don't take anything else away from this sermon this morning, hear this. Jesus is better than marriage and a family. Full stop. He is better than anything marriage and family can bring you. It doesn't mean that being married and having a family is not a good gift. But it is just that, a gift. The giver of the gift is far greater than the gift itself. And when I think about my own kids now, when we get to times to give them gifts, why do I want to give them gifts? Because I love them. I want them to enjoy them. But sometimes kids have this tendency to love the gift more than they love me. I don't like that very much. God doesn't either. And here's the reality. Most of the times, my kids break those gifts within minutes. But dad sticks around. Mom sticks around. Jesus is the same. And in him, here's the promise to all of us. We have a family. You're sitting in a room with them this morning. They're sitting in other churches across this city this morning. They've been gathering together all over the world this morning, celebrating our God and our King who died in our place and has given us a family. And here's the truth about our family. It's diverse. It's global. It's crazy. But it's centered around our Father who is to be praised. Single people, you need not give in to the lie that you have no family because in Christ, we have been given a family to walk through this life with and the next. You know what's crazy? Is Jesus even teaches in the New Testament when the, the Pharisees try at one point to trip him up, excuse me, the Sadducees, on marriage. And they say, hey, this guy, this woman, she's married. She had you know, eight husbands. Who, who will she be married to in eternity? And Jesus is like, none of them. Because the nuclear family as it exists here on earth is not going to exist in the same way in eternity. You know what is going to exist? Jesus' family. The church. And the bonds and the friendships and the relationships we work at to build intimacy here in this life will continue into the next. And do I know exactly what that's going to look like? No. But they'll be there. 
I'm going to get to hang out with Jackie in eternity. We're not going to be husband and wife, though. Jackie's like, yes and amen. <laughs> A little self-deprecating humor for you this morning. But we enjoy these relationships now to the glory of God, and we will enjoy them in glory as we worship our King and Creator. So, let's tie a bow on this. Right? Obviously, I couldn't cover everything I possibly wanted to cover this morning, but I want to leave us with a few practical things maybe to walk out of here with as maybe tools in our tool belt to kind of start living this out, maybe start getting a bigger picture of singleness as a gift to be enjoyed to God's glory, right? How can singles practically work towards enjoying singleness as a gift? Number one, pursue intimacy in relationships, especially in the local church. So let's start with this. The church matters. You need to be plugged into the local church. If you are not plugged into the local church, single person, you need to fix that. Because God has given you a family to develop intimate relationships with. And here's the crazy thing about the church. There are people in this church, I love you guys, you drive me crazy sometimes. And I'm sure I do the same to you. We are compelled by God to forgive and love one another. So if you are looking for deep friendships, this is the place to start. There is no obligation for that level of intimacy and friendship in other organizations. There is no, at your local gym, at CrossFit, no one signs a contract saying, I will love this person and stick by them no matter what. You may like your CrossFit gym. This isn't me banging on CrossFit. <laughs> But there is no obligation to one another in, in that place. The church, there is. Right? Jesus looks at us and says, oh, that guy offended you? Well, good, you did that to me and I forgave you. Go forgive him. Go figure it out. Extend grace, love, mercy towards one another. The best place for that to happen is at the local church. Get involved. And here's the deal. You can be a single person. You can be at the local church. You can be involved. You can develop intimate relationships. And here's the deal. You can be enjoying the gift of singleness and still want to get married. Those things are not mutually exclusive, right? It is possible to enjoy singleness while still desiring marriage. You enjoy the gift God has given you now until he might one day give you the gift of marriage. And the best place to do that is with your brothers and sisters in Christ who can love, equip, encourage, and empower you to walk through that. Number two, single people, do the hard work of asking the Holy Spirit to unearth marriage and relationship idols in your own heart. And there's a reason why I called this hard work. We ask the Holy Spirit to do this because you don't want to do it on your own. And so we need God's wisdom to do it. I learned a lot 
about how difficult singleness can be from talking to others the last couple weeks, asking questions and listening. And here's kind of the, the thing I took away as I walked through all that. And sometimes married, um, single people have a tendency to think that marriage is the key to contentment, and it's not. Christ is. If you walk into marriage thinking that your spouse, and we talked about this last week, is the key to your happiness and contentment, you are going to be sorely and miserably disappointed because that person is going to fail you. Jesus will not. And he is the key to contentment. Number three, speak honestly and openly about the difficulty of singleness with other single people and married people. It needs to be both. And here's why. Single people, you understand one another, but you sometimes aren't very good at calling each other out on where you're believing lies. And so it kind of becomes like that toxic work environment where everyone's unhappy and they just complain, so the work environment gets worse because everyone's complaining, right? And so this is why, like, some people are like, hey, does a lady have, like, a singles ministry, like mixers and stuff like that? And I'm like, eh. I kind of like the single people and the married people to hang out with one another because they both have things to bring to the table for one another, to encourage one another. And this doesn't mean, like, that you can't have single friends because you do need that but you also need to be able to talk to married people about the difficulty of this. And guys, here's the deal. Transparency is key. I learned a lot of things this week about things that I do as a married man that cause single people skin to crawl. And now that I, now that I know that, guess what? I don't want to do that anymore. But guess what that took? It took some single men being brave enough to be like, yeah, dude, you hurt my feelings. Stop. That was dumb. If we do that, we can start walking this out. So speak honestly and openly about the difficulty of singleness with other single and married people. All right, married couples, you ready? Here's some practical things we can do and work out towards encouraging singleness as a gift in our brothers and single sisters who are not married. Number one, and please, please hear these. Stop over-romanticizing marriage to single people. I think sometimes we even do that because we have to do it to try to get ourselves to believe it. Right, but he here's what you subconsciously are communicating to your single friends. My life's great and yours isn't because you're not married. Talk to your single friends about how hard marriage is how much work it can be, how sanctifying it is, right? Giving them a realistic picture of what marriage actually is like will help your single friends not develop a false view of marriage. Like, hey, Kevin and Jackie fight a lot. Well, maybe marriage isn't that great. It is, it's good. It's also hard sometimes, just like singleness. Number two, this might be the biggest one because literally every single person I talked to begged me to share this one. Stop constantly trying to set your single friends up with other people 
first of all, I don't know why humans want to do this. Every time I've ever done this, it goes horribly wrong, and then it's awkward. Jackie and I have done this one time, and Jackie, how many times did I, Jackie wants to do this sometimes, and I've been like, uh-uh, we're not going to be those people, we're not going to be setting people up, we're not doing it, and we did it one time, and it didn't go well, and guess what? A-W-K-W-A-R-D afterwards, right? Because they were both our friends, I spelled awkward, by the way, if you don't know what that spells. <laughs> we had two friends, right, and here, and here they are, right? One was my sister and one was a close family friend. We'd set them up, they dated, and then like it kind of didn't end super great. But they both went to the church and then it's like, oh, weird. Right? And, it, and it's okay, right? Like single people, you don't have to marry the person you're dating right now. Like it might not be the right decision. But when you set people up, you are like a part of that relationship then by proxy. And the awkwardness then extends to you as well because they're going to talk about all the things that went wrong. And it's like, yeah, you're sinners. What did you expect? But it's really difficult. And not only this, right? That's the side for the very people where I'm just trying to tell you, you're walking into uh, your own problems if you do this. But from the single people that I talk to, right? When we do this constantly, what we're communicating to them is that there's something wrong with them because they're not married yet. Like if you're constantly trying to set your single friend up with somebody, you're like, hey, I like you, but I would like you better if you were married. Because that sucks. Like th think about, think about like when, when I was a kid, right? I had this friend and then another friend got a better toy. And this is, the, I swear to you, this is what he said to me. Yeah, I like you, uh, but Steve's toys are better. So I'm going to go play with him instead. Notice the guys are laughing and the ladies are like, oh, dudes, you got some work to do. I'm pouring my heart and soul out to you right now of this like trauma I experienced as a kid. And you're like, ha -ha! But like, do you know how much that hurts? Oh, cool, man. Like, everybody see that episode of The Office where Jim's mom recommends to him to not be friends with that one kid because he's not in the same reading group as him? That, that guy holds on to it like 20 years later and shows up in The Office, and Jim is super, super concerned about being around him. And then he finally walks into the guy, and what does the guy do? Calls him out. Oh, yeah, I guess I'm too stupid, huh? Right? That stuff sticks with us. Now imagine you're doing that to your friend who is single communicating to them week after week, month after month. Why aren't you married yet? Let me set you up with someone. Now, by the way, this does not mean we can't do this, but here's what was communicated to me from some of my single friends. Ask for permission to do that. And if they give you permission, then you can be annoying. I would still highly recommend it not to do it. But that's just my opinion, not the Lord's. <laughs> but ask for permission so we might love them well. Number three, here's a big one. Some of you guys who are single now and are dating and will be married soon, because a lot of you guys will probably in the next five years, this will happen to you. You need to hear this one just as much as the married people do right now. 
Stop ghosting single friends once you get married. Especially ones you're close with. Look, if it's harder to get together, communicate that. If you need to come up with a plan, do that. We have Google calendars or Apple calendars or whatever you have. Put it in a calendar. Hey, every six weeks, you're coming over or we're going out to eat or whatever. But don't ghost them. That hurts. Right? I get it. I have been married for 12 years and I have two kids and a full-time job. It's hard. But if you have a close relationship with somebody, you need to have conversations with that person about how that relationship is going to move forward if they're single and you are not. And here's the deal, guys. We have telephones. You can have a 20-minute phone call with somebody once a week. Maybe you missed the bachelorette this week. I don't know. You invest your time in what you care about. And if you're not continuing those relationships, think about what you're communicating to them. Finally, married people, here's the last one. Invite single people into your lives, including the mundane. Every single person I talked to said this. Dude, we'll come over and eat dinner and help you bathe your kids. Like, we'll do that. We'd love to do that. Invite us in. Right? Hey, we're not doing anything for the holidays. Invite us over. We'll hang out with you. Shoot, if you're lucky, if they're good cooks, they might even cook for you. They would love to cook for more than one. I had two separate people tell me that. Yeah, cooking for one sucks. I'll come over. I'll cook for your family. And of course, Jackie's like, yes. <laughs> Praise be to the Lord of heavens. Right? Invite them into your life. Invite them in to be part of your nuclear family. Church, we should be the ones that are doing these things. Right? Esteeming singleness and esteeming marriage. And may we encourage one another towards contentment, not in our relationship status, but in Christ. As both married men and women and as single men and women who view these things as gifts from a good and gracious king. Marriage sanctifies and points us to the fact that Christ is sufficient. My partner fails and does not complete me. You learn that in marriage very quickly. And that encourages and points me to Jesus who never fails me and is my king. Singleness sanctifies and points us to the truth that Christ is sufficient. My deepest longing for intimacy can be found in Jesus, and I am living proof. He provides intimacy both in his word, through the Holy Spirit, as a comforter, and through the church. He has given me brothers, sisters, and mothers. And as a church, might we do the hard work of being a family to one another, inviting, engaging, encouraging one another to love Jesus and one another. And in that, failing one another, asking for forgiveness, extending that forgiveness to one another, and in extending that grace, 
experiencing a small foretaste of the grace that Christ, that Christ has given to us. All to the glory of Jesus. And so here's how I want us to respond. If we can turn the lights down, I'm going to invite the band back up. And I want you guys to do something very specific for me in our response time today. Every week at Aletheia Church, we take communion. You can come up and grab that. If you are a believer and a follower of Jesus, you are invited to freely take communion. We always encourage you that as you take communion to view it as an act of worship because Jesus died in your place and that represent his flesh and blood poured out for you. But as you take communion, will you take a moment this morning to pray? And I'm gonna ask you to do something very specific. If you are single here this morning, I want you to think of one married couple you know, and I want you to pray for them. Pray that God would help them to realize that their marriage is a gift to be enjoyed to the glory of God and ask the Holy Spirit how you might love and encourage them in their marriage so that they might grow, mature, and love one another well. And then married people, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about a single person or a couple single people you know, and I want you to pray for them. I want you to pray that they would experience and know God's love for them in Christ, that they would experience true intimacy and friendships inside of the family of God, that if they desire a spouse, that they would grow and mature, and that God would send that spouse when they are ready, and that ultimately, that we would both, as single and married people here this morning, pray for one another to find our contentment in Christ. And then I want you to do this for me. When you leave here today, will you tell that person you prayed for them and you're gonna continue to pray for them so that we would know practically that we love one another, are encouraging one another, and pushing one another towards contentment in Christ. Will you do that for me?